Welcome once again to our online service. We're actually wrapping up these pre-recorded services because on June 14th, we're actually going to open up our church again to live services at our normal service time. And if you live in the area, uh, whether you're a member of this church or just live in the community and been checking us out online, we hope you'll come and join us for one of the services that day. We'll continue to do online services and actually we'll live stream them right from this auditorium on Sunday morning at 915. So you continue can continue to join us at that time. And things will look a little bit different for those who come here. We'll have half the chairs removed so we can practice some social distancing and we'll do some things a little bit differently. And we'll uh, make sure that you have that information before you come. But it'll be so good to see you. We've missed you. We've missed interacting with you, seeing your, your faces, uh, hearing your questions, praying for you and uh, hearing your laughter to my jokes. I mean, really, it's good to have people in this room with us. And, uh, you know, this has been a very difficult season for a lot of churches. I know a number of pastors who have large churches, and they said this is such a difficult decision for them to make, when to reopen the church, because there's so many factors at play. There's so many issues at stake, and whether we're going in defiance of the governor or we're um, offending people or... Uh, we're, we're not being bold enough. I mean, all kinds of things. There, there are some people who really emphasize safety. We've got to be safe. We've got to make sure nobody gets the virus. And, and those over here who value freedom that, hey, God doesn't want us to live in fear and we've got to be able to engage with people. And we know that uh, we'll never remove this virus totally from our culture. We have to learn to engage with one another and be civil about it. And I've been disappointed sometimes at the harsh comments, the polarization on social media. I mean, actually, you know what I've done at times? I've actually unfriended some people or, or just unfollowed some people because I don't want to be agitated by comments that people make that I think are kind of offensive. And God wants us to be understanding and kind. And if I could ask you to do one thing, ask yourself before you respond to someone this question. What is the loving thing to do or to say? What is the loving thing to do or to say in response? I mean, it's easy just to retaliate, to vent, but really, what is the loving thing to do? And if you put yourself in someone else's shoes, if you empathize with them, that might help you to do that because, you know, God's doing some incredible things during this time. And I believe he's trying to teach us some lessons. That's why we're going back to this ancient group of people called the Israelites in the Bible and how they went from this place of slavery in Egypt to the place of abundance in the promised land. They went from bondage to bounty because God had made a promise to their ancestor, Abraham, that he would lead his people to Canaan, this, this place of abundance, and that his family would multiply uh, to form many nations. And out of his uh, family lineage would come one who would, who would be the savior of the people, who would be a blessing to all the nations. And there were some hiccups along the way, but, but God is getting the people back on course with that. He, he wants to reach the world and bring them into a relationship with himself. And if you remember the story that we've gone over um, time after time in the series, God rescued his people. He heard their cries in Egypt. He brings them out through a parted sea. They end up in this desert with Moses and a number of different things happen um, until they get to this mountain called Mount Sinai. Sinai. And that's where we are, we are as we pick up Exodus chapter 19, starting with verse 2. It says, They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. 
There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. And the Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. I mean, God is, is helping them understand their new identity as members of his family. And, it's, and it takes place at this mountain called Mount Sinai. Now, they're going to stay here for about two months. And this mountain is very significant in biblical understanding. Because in, ancient, in the ancient Near East, cultures believed that the gods lived in the mountains. And so it was no different for the Israelites that God would appear to them on this mountain. And we'll see that evident uh, in this chapter and the following chapter, that God is up on the mountain and Moses goes up to meet with God and God speaks with Moses there. And Moses hears from God and God uh, gives him a statement to give to the people. And the beginning of that statement says that God bore them on eagle's wings and brought them out of Egypt to himself. In other words, God brought them out of something in order to bring them into something. He brought them out of Egypt, not just to wander in the desert, not just to, just to wake up and, and, and wander aimlessly. He brought them out of Egypt to himself so that they could be in a relationship with himself. If you remember Adam and Eve, they, they walked with God in the garden until sin entered the picture. But here, here they are once again. God is in their midst. He's in their presence. He's going to teach them how to walk with himself. And it, you know, it parallels to me, uh, the Exodus and this whole wilderness journey parallels many things in the ministry of Jesus. One of those is that when Jesus chose disciples, this is what he did. It says in the gospel of Mark chapter three, verse 14, and he appointed 12 whom we also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. Catch that. He, he appointed them to be with him and then that he could send them out. Jesus wants them to be with him, just like God has brought them out of G Egypt to be with him. God wants to mold them, shape them, so then he could send them out for the mission he has for them in the world. And, and he wants us to be partners with him in his mission. God has a love for the world, and that love's going to be displayed through his people. And so if you belong to Jesus, what the message is, then behave like Jesus. If you belong to God, then behave like God. And you should do that because of these identifying statements that God gives to his people through Moses. The first one is this. You are my treasured possession. My treasured possession. Now think about it. What's your most treasured possession? If, if there was a storm coming, say if you knew there was a, a, a tornado. We don't get hurricanes in Colorado. We get tornadoes. But if you live in another culture, maybe it's, a, maybe it's a hurricane. And it's going to be devastating. And you are told you can grab one thing one possession, and then you got to get out of your house. What would it be? Would it be a, a photograph? Would it be a book, a, a photo album, or a thumb drive with pictures? Uh, would, it, would it be your, your cell phone? What would be that one thing that you would want to have more than anything else? And I, I believe if you really thought that through, it would be a person. It would be a person in your family that you'd want to make sure made it out of there alive. And, and if you're a single person, maybe you're, you're a widow, widower, you're single, and you live by yourself, uh, it's, it's likely you have a pet. And I would think that, that that would be the thing you would grab, a living being. Living being means so much more to us than, than inanimate objects. And my point is that 
people can be your most valued possession because when God looks over the earth, he says, it's all mine. But you know what I value most on this earth is people and people who want to walk with me above all. Yes, God loves the whole world, but he treasures those who want to walk with him. And I think it's just so amazing. When you look at this world, you see the Grand Canyon, Niagara Falls, um, the Redwood Forest, a number of beautiful things. God says, ah, they don't compare to my treasured possession, which is my people. We as followers of God, are his treasured people. And so God is forming this people. Now, he's always wanted people to be like that. He wanted Adam and Eve to be that treasured people. But remember, they rebelled against God and went a different direction, and they were cast out of the garden. They died. And uh, the, the whole culture got worse and worse, and it degenerated until God raised up this man named Noah, had Noah build an ark, and on that ark, God saved Noah and his sons and their spouses. And then he told them to do what he told Adam and Eve to do, be fruitful and multiply. And so they had children, and they multiplied again, and, and more and more people filled the earth. But again, the people became wicked. In fact, they came to this place we know as uh, Babel. And they gathered together in this place called Babel and said, we don't want to scatter out like God wants us to. See, God told them to, to fill the earth. They didn't want to do that. They wanted to stay together as one group. They built this tower called a ziggurat. And a ziggurat is basically a, a tall structure that was used for religious purposes. It was a way to get close to your gods. And they wanted to to do that because of this. This is found in, in Genesis chapter 11, verse 4. Uh, they said, let us make a name for ourselves. Let's not glorify God's name. Let us make a name for ourselves. They're, they're being proud. The very thing that's at the heart of all sin. It's not about God. It's about me. And you remember what God did? He came down there. He confused their languages and he dispersed them. Now, something that you don't know until you connect that story to a passage from Deuteronomy chapter 32 is what happened after that. Let me read this to you. It says in Deuteronomy 32, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, divided them at Babel, sent them out in different languages, different locations, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Now, some of your Bibles say sons of Israel. Israel didn't exist as a nation at that time. And this word sons of God refers to spirit beings. It's, it's angelic forces, not necessarily evil ones, but they're lesser forces, spiritual beings over these territories. He fixed the borders, sent them out, assigned people to their oversight, the spiritual oversight in those regions. But then it says this in verse 9, but the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. Of all the nations, God says, there's one that I'm going to keep my eye on, one that's, that I'm going to work with and form and mold to be used by me to reach the rest of the nations, and that will be the family line of Jacob. And the name Jacob is just another title um, for Israel. Uh, Jacob wrestled with God one night and, and God renamed him Israel because Israel meant wrestles with God. And so that became uh, another name for Jacob, but they mean the same thing. And uh, of all these various um, nations, this one, God says, will be my treasured possession. But there's a condition there. He says, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you'll be my treasured possession. There's an expectation that you will live like my children. In other words, he's saying, if you're going to be in my family, then you need to act like it. You need to act like it. This isn't an unconditional promise. I think so many people today feel like, well, God chose Israel, and therefore God's promise is forever. But it's, it's conditioned on the fact that they would hear his voice and keep the covenant. If they broke those, they were just like the Egyptians. 
and which is why many, many Jewish people today who've rejected Jesus are in that category. God's promise is for those who keep his covenant. In Titus chapter 2, it speaks in the New Testament that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. They want to live for God. They want to do things that are pleasing to God. That's an identifying characteristic of truly a person who is in covenant relationship with God. They want to serve God with their life. So that's the first title is, is this treasured possession. Another one is that we are a kingdom of priests, a kingdom of priests. Now, when you think of the word priest, if, if you're like me, I think back to when I was a child of the Catholic priest who wore the vestments and, and spoke in a way that just made him sound you know, more spiritual than anybody else. And the priest could perform certain religious rituals that nobody else could perform. I mean, that's our picture of a priest. But, you know, in biblical times, the priests, they're the ones that would offer the sacrifices. They would, they would offer grain sacrifices or oil sacrifices or, or mainly animal sacrifices. And in many ways, they were like the butchers in the meat market because they were always cutting up animals and putting them on the fire. So that was a priest then. But that hasn't even been established yet. There is no priesthood in Israel. So why is he calling them a kingdom of priests? Well, there were other priests in the world at that time. You might have heard of a guy named Melchizedek, who was a priest in, um, in Salem. Moses' um, father-in-law was called the priest of Midian. And Egypt had a number of various priests. So a priest was a common term in that culture. And so when they thought of priests, they likely thought of this. A priest is someone who's an intermediary between humans and God. Someone who's a go-between between the human and, and their God, you know, whatever religion they're in. For us, Jehovah God, but for other religions, their God. A priest was the one that stood in between and helped connect the two. And so the person that knows God helps introduce the other person to God. A couple months ago, a friend of mine in the church uh, told me that I needed to call a pastor of a very large church down in Alabama. Uh, th this pastor leads a conference every year. It's a phenomenal conference. A lot of church leaders go to it. And it's so popular that the day it opened, it sold out. And so you really couldn't even buy a ticket to this conference. But this pastor in Alabama said that they offer some scholarships, some free passes to a, a number of different pastors who probably can't afford to attend this. And so my friend Troy says, you need to call this pastor, and I've got his uh, cell number because Troy was a friend of a childhood friend of this pastor. He said, give him a call because he wants to talk to you about this and offer this opportunity for you to go to this conference. And, and so I did. I called him up the next day. We had a great conversation. If everything goes well, uh, I'll be going to that conference with a few other guys at the end of July. But here's, here's the point. The reason I was able to go and the reason I made that connection was because of somebody in between us. My friend Troy knew me and knew this pastor in Alabama and was able to connect us together. And that's the role of a priest, connecting people that don't know God with God. And so he's telling all the, the Israelites, you all are priests. I, I want all of you to be intermediaries uh, to help people that don't know me out in the world, all these other nations. You're the go-between to help introduce them to me. And so we play that role today. Um, every Christian, in a sense, is a priest. 
We are a witness for the Lord. We're his ambassadors. We go out into the world. Why? Because we know God and we're introducing God to people that don't know him so they can know him like we know him. And when we do that well, we, we fulfill the function as a priest. And so that's part of our identity. It's part of our calling in the family of God as we represent God to the unbelieving world so they too can know him and join the family of God. And then there's a third identifying mark in this um, story where God calls them a holy nation. He says, you are a holy nation. Now, I remember hearing that word when I was a kid. The very first time I heard that word was in the show Batman. Because <laughs> that was one of Robin's favorite expressions. Uh, Batman sidekick Robin would, would put the word holy in front of all kinds of words. You know, holy bunions, Batman, holy Cinderella, holy Paderewski. Uh, one time Batman noticed that there were three letters missing uh, from the alphabet in someone's soup. And it just blew Robin away that Batman could even grasp that. So he said, holy, uncanny, photographic, mental processes, Batman. <laughs> holy everything. And, and I've heard some holy being put with a lot of worse things too. But the fact is, holy is, is not just a word we toss around. I mean, when you think of someone who's holy, we, we think of someone who's elevated, someone who's morally superior, someone who's very religious, very obedient to God. And while that's, that can be an aspect of holiness, the basic meaning of the word holy means distinct. It means different. It means separate. It means this has been set apart for a higher calling. Uh, we'll, we'll learn in the Ten Commandments that we are to keep the Sabbath day holy. What does that mean? It means you keep it separate from all the other days. You keep it different. You keep it special among all the other days. That's how you make it holy. And so we are to be a people that are holy. Now, when we get into chapter 20 of Exodus, uh, God gives the Ten Commandments. And I don't have time to go through all that. That's a whole number, number of sermons, to be honest, to go through all the Ten Commandments. But I think you're very familiar with the commandments of, you shall have no other gods before me. Don't make any graven images. You know, don't use the, the name of the Lord in vain. Keep the Sabbath day holy. Honor your father and mother. Do not commit murder or commit adultery or lie or bear false witness or covet. I mean, all those things. We, we know the basic commandments, but they're not given to deprive people of fun. They are to help people know what God's children look like, how they're different from all the other cultures. See, one of the challenges we have right now as Christians is, is we are to live a life that isn't, uh, that doesn't look down on others, but it's just different than others. For example, the reason we are, we marry the men and the women that we live with and we want to sleep with is because that honors God. That honors the covenant we make with God. That's why Christians do that. But you know, most of your friends don't do that. that, that that's not a value to them. And we are, to, we are to march to a different beat as believers because all these laws that God gives are representative of his desires for our lives. It's, it, it reflects his character. Now, I want to focus on one, one of the, the commandments in particular. It says this in Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. My whole life, when I've heard that verse, I always thought it meant when people um, curse God's name. When, when they use God's name in a vulgar way, and there's a lot of cuss words that use, you know, Jesus and God in it, and you guys all know that and heard it and probably said a few yourself. And, uh, and while those aren't appropriate, that's not what this verse is talking about at all. It's not talking about our language. I mean, there's a place where we, we, we should honor God with our language. But there's a bigger picture here. 
See, this verse says that you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. It is, you shall not take upon yourself the name of God, meaning for, for us to be the name Christian. You shall not take the name of the Lord upon yourself and then not live accordingly because it's blasphemous to the Lord. People look at you and wonder, that's the kind of God you serve? See, when we take on the name of the Lord, and for anyone who's baptized, we baptize them in what? The name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not just a word, a name, a title, like Joe, uh, Susie, Darren. The name means all he is, all he represents. So when I take on the name of the Lord, it's like I'm, I'm taking on this honor of living my life in a way that's different from other people so that I may be honoring to him and reflect his character so they could see God in me. They could see Jesus in me. That's the whole goal here. He says, if, if that's not what you want to do, then, then don't claim to be a follower of mine. If you don't want to walk the walk, then, then don't talk that way. Don't, don't call yourself a Christian if you're not going to live like a Christian. This past week, a friend of mine who's a pastor in another state asked a, a question. And he said to... Uh, his congregation, he just threw it out there, a question. He said, uh, what do you guys think about people missing church during the summer months to, to follow their kids' sports programs or maybe to go camping? I mean, is it wrong? Is it right? And, and so uh, people started responding. And of course, the, the dominant response were things like this. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. You can worship God anywhere. I mean, those are all true. And a lot of people said that. And I finally spoke up and just shared a personal experience. See, I remember years ago in a ministry where I served of two elders who were very close friends. They both, they, they both became elders about the same time. Both were dynamic spiritual leaders in the church. But one, one summer, uh, one of the elders decided that they were going to take the summer off from church to be involved in their boys' club sports program. They're going to travel all around the state to baseball games. And so they missed the entire summer. They came back in the fall and they got back involved in church, but not to the degree of which they served before the following year. They did it again, but this time they didn't come back after the season. They just drifted away from church. In fact, they, they drifted away from our church. They drifted away from church altogether. They may have dabbled here and there, but eventually um, the, the family fell apart. The, the couple ended up divorcing from each other after um, after an affair, and to this day, they're not involved in a church near to the degree that they ever were in the past. And this other friend who was faithful to the church, who told his family always to keep God first and, and always worship him on the Lord's day, you know, their kids have grown up and they're very devoted to the church. They're very faithful to the Lord. And, and this man talked to the other man who, who took his sons to the, the baseball games in the summer and said, what happened? You know, what, what happened to you in your faith? Where did things kind of go in a different direction? And this man confessed that the turning point for him was when he chose summer sports over worship. Those were his words. Because it's true, you don't have to go to church to worship the Lord. And you can worship the Lord anywhere. The problem is, are you doing that? Are you, are you worshiping the Lord in other places? Are you making him a priority? Because the truth is most people don't. They just use that as an excuse of why not to go to church. And I think it's a, it's a faulty argument because while it's technically true, it just doesn't make sense. I mean, when you enter into a relationship, you enter in with a commitment of devotion and loyalty. And, and in that whole package of commitment is a, is a whole nother set of expectations. For example, when I married my wife, 
there wasn't a rule that I had to get a job. Uh, there wasn't any kind of rule that every night I needed to come home for dinner or, or sleep in the same bed as her. It, it, there's no, there was no written obligation for me to have to talk to her every day or, or treat her nicely. I mean, none of those things. But, you know, there were expectations because if I want a relationship with her, I better act like it. I better live like it. I better, I better show that she's a priority in my life. And why would we as believers in the Lord, who has delivered us out of our own Egypt, say to him, I don't have to worship you this way? Shouldn't we turn it around and say, I want to worship you every way I can? I want to honor you in every way I can. Because it's very dangerous to start cutting corners and giving us excuses for, for our lack of devotion to the Lord. If you're going to wear the name, then wear it. Then wear it. Act like a Christian if you are a Christian. I have a number of uh, hats. You know, this is one. Uh, of course, you guys probably know I'm a Green Bay Packers fan, but I'm also a Chicago Cubs fan. And uh, they're not playing baseball right now, so I'm putting my hopes on football coming back. But you know what? When I wear that label, you know, I cheer for that team. Um, you know, when I, when I carry the name Green Bay, uh, you know, I cheer for them. I'm, I'm loyal to that team in my, my fan response. But man, how much more do I cheer and stand up for the Lord because I chose to wear his name? And even though it's not a, a tattooed on me, the name Christian, I want to live my life in a way that reflects Jesus to others. Now, we look at this calling that God gave to the nation of Israel, that they were to be his holy, they were to be his treasured possession, royal priesthood, and a holy nation. And feel like, wow, that was great for them back there. But do you know that these are exact same terms that God applies to you and me who are believers in Jesus? Listen to Peter in his first letter where he writes this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God continues to fulfill his ancient promise to Abraham to raise up children who will, then, who will then love the world and help introduce those uh, disinherited peoples back into the fold, into the family of God. And you and I have that privilege as his children. So I hope you've taken it seriously. I hope that if, if you claim to be a follower of Christ, you know that God has drawn you to himself in a very precious way so then he can send you out to make an impact on the world for his name, that the name of the Lord may be elevated and praised among all peoples. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the privilege we have of being your children, of following you and, and drawing near to you because you want to draw us to yourself. And Lord, I pray you continue to teach us during the season of this pandemic as we ease things. Lord, I pray that we're grasping significant lessons of how to follow you in a better way so that, so that we truly can enjoy the abundance, the blessings that you intend to give us. But they aren't just for our benefit. It's to show us what kind of God you are so others can look and see you in us. So Lord, may we represent you well. May we wear your name well upon our hearts that in all we say and do, we give honor to the name of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.